everyone and welcome back to the 16mm Film Crew. I'm Cindy. And I'm Dale. You can watch us on YouTube. You can like and comment on our YouTube videos and subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can support us on Anchor. You can listen to us everywhere podcasts are found at 16mm Film Crew Podcasts. Leave us a rate and review. And visit us on our website at www.16millimeterfilmcrew.com. So this week is a very special episode because we're watching the um, very talked about, highly um, praised film, Past Lives. But it's also my birthday. Whoa! <laughs> this is this will be backwards. So That's the right way. in the camera. It, oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, it's the right way. <laughs> Woo! Um, Happy birthday yeah. to you. Oh, Happy. let's not sing. I don't have the open gift of singing, so I might I might as well stop here, right? Not everybody has it. That's true. <laughs> um, yeah, and I'm spending it doing what I love most, which is talking about movies with my friend. So let's get into this episode. All right, let me give you the synopsis of past lives. So Noor and Sung, two deeply connected childhood friends, are rest apart after Noor's family immigrates to, from South Korea. Decades later, they are reunited for one fateful week as they confront destiny, love, and the choices that make a life. This movie stars Greta Lee, Tio Yu, and John Magan- Magana. I want to say it like in an Italian way, but I don't know if it's Mercado. if it's in the I'm rolling my like Spanish. I don't know. I don't know. John Magaro. Okay, maybe. let's say it's that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's directed by Celine Song. Okay, Dale, I am very interested to hear your thoughts on about this film. Um, so we know how we talked about last week with um uh Asteroid City being a study in like loss and grief. I think this movie is one that does it beautifully to a T. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's, and I think a lot of people can somehow relate to this experience a bit of you still holding onto memories, particularly when you're younger, about people in your past. I know for me, I've I've done that many times. I know, especially I can I can relate to um. To Nora, you know, moving when you're kids and you know you disconnect from the people you grew up with and wondering what they're up to. Like still to this day, at like 30, 30 years old, thirty years old, I still wonder, oh, what you know, my friends in Miami, what they they're doing now, and when I left or whatever, things like that. Or even the kids when I was living in New York and I left at like six. I like I wonder, you know, like my friend Brian back then. Like I remember the I remember his name. I like I wonder like what he's up to in his adult life. You know, those kind of things. So it's it's very relatable. Um and it's moving. I feel like this movie is also a very much a test bed for especially with the successes a lot of these Korean films have had in the US as far as winning awards. If they could enter the US market and still be fine. You know, for me mostly most of the screenings for this movie were like at theaters, like one one screening a day, like one of the theaters by me had it at like a twelve o'clock or twelve thirty. The other one near me had it like the other AMC near me had it like at like um five o'clock, and it was just those two places near me once a day. Um, so I do feel like this movie is also a test bet to see if 
that Korean market, which has been gaining steam in the U.S. with Netflix and, you know, Parasite winning, you know, and we've, we've seen that kind of shift, if they can handle international releases with their project as well. Yeah, that's a good point, because this movie wasn't playing in many places. Um, the place where it was playing by me only had one screening for the day I wanted to go. Um, and my friend, I told my friend about it, and she went to go get a ticket, and she got it, but she did say that it was, like, very limited screenings. So I think hopefully, by word of mouth, this movie will gain, gain traction, and, like, more theaters will be, you know they'll jump on the opportunity to have it play in their theaters because there is an appetite for these type of movies. So I hope that's the case. Um, but for me, this film was so talked about by like literally everyone. And I was like, okay, let's go into it. Let's see what it's about. At first I was like, yeah, this is like cute, but I don't see like what it is particularly about this film that has everyone talking. And then the end, the last 30 minutes, I left the theater crying. Like I was like, oh, okay, got yeah. it. That's what this did to me. Of course, it always happens at the end. Like <laughs> they did the same thing with After Sun. I was like, this movie is fine. Like, what is it? And then boom, it hits you like out of nowhere. And it's surprisingly, I can't believe that like parallels of both of these films where it's like both of After Sun and Past Lives were directed by two women, women, and this was their directorial debut. So this is like the first time they've directed anything, any feature film. Yeah. And it's about uh, their very personal lives, like taken from, you know, the story is taken from their own lives. And I found that to be so interesting about like, how is that the films that are really moving people are the films that are extremely personal. Not a lot happens. You're just kind of like following people around doing like just living their lives. And yet that those are the stories that are the most impactful. Like it's just, to me, that says something about like where we're at just in terms of the industry. Like this is this like there are there's so much money being poured into kind of fantastical movies, big dramatic things, but like they're not really touching people in the same way that these smaller films are. And I just think that maybe we're not, maybe we're our, our sight is a little misguided in terms of like what we're pouring money into. Mm-hmm. I think we could we need to pivot a little bit because it's like I I think. T- it's a confluence of a lot of things. I think our mm-hmm. generation, um, whether you're Gen X, you're Xennial, you're Millennial, you're Gen Z, I think we're a lot more in tune with how we feel than our parents, you know, the, that boomer generation. Um, and to some kids, if you're a Millennial or, or Z, your parents would be, you know, early Xers, but still, I think we're more in tune as a as a unit with how we're feeling, how we're thinking. And we've talked about before how we have a generation of directors, you know, Greta, that that group of directors who are, or even on the animation side, you know, Lord and Miller, you know, whether they're doing um, Spider-Verse or whether the Lego movie or, um, or Meet the Millers, I think if that's a movie called, that was animated feature, but, or After Sun, you have a lot more directors and writers who are giving up of themselves and writing about their experiences 
like more than we've ever only a director I can think of that does that on a personal level as we've gotten older we've noticed it is Spielberg like Spielberg has honestly been up front nowadays especially with the with Fableman it's like his stories are you know his expression of you know stuff he was dealing with as a child that was his way he processed it um and I think it's not only that but a the pandemic where people were isolated we were left very alone so and then somebody also mentioned recently of there's a shift in our entertainment as far as people want more relationships being showcased in our entertainment like they were mentioning with um the bear um they hope and like did and carmy cook up they're talking about all these other relationships that they want to like to experience like whether in a parasocial kind of way and i think that's as we've gotten older we've realized we don't connect emotionally with people anymore so we want those experiences and we crave those experiences in our entertainment and i think those four things have really pushed and influenced what we're being shown with now in theaters yeah i agree i feel like more people are more filmmakers are willing to be vulnerable with their stories and tell them which is really cool um speaking of this story i the story is about nora who grows up in seoul and she has a best friend Sung, and then her family moves to canada so she leaves when she's 12 and so most of her life is like spent um you know overseas it's spent in Western civilization. And she's very driven and she wants to be a writer. One of the best things about this story that I love, which is like a nice recurring, almost like an in-joke between both of them is when he says, oh, you wanted to win the Nobel Prize. Now, what do you want to win? Now you want to win a Tony. Now you want to win this, a Pulitzer. And it's like very cute because it's like, they've known each other for so long, but also like, who she is as a person, like what she wants out of life, you know, being very ambitious, being very headstrong. Um, like that's the reason why they actually can't be together because there's a moment in the film where, you know, after they've been separated for this long time, Sung finds her on Facebook or he tries to find her and then she reaches out to him and they start to reconnect. But after reconnecting for a while, she breaks it off essentially. And when I was watching it, I was like, why? Like, it doesn't seem like you guys are just friends. Like, it's not like you're committing to a relationship or you're trying to make like a long distance thing work. It's just, you guys are just talking and it seems to be helpful or at least comforting to have a friend that you used to know so well from home, like to have them back in your life. Why would you want to cut it off? But I think that from her perspective, it's like, I need to focus my attention on my career and I don't want to, and maybe like him being in her life was making her think too much of the past and not being as present as she could be. Maybe I don't really know her reasons for like not doing that. I still don't know to this day, but I know towards the end when they do reconnect and she's married and he's, you know, gone off to China, he's living his own life. He's had different relationships. Like what essentially it is, is that like her ambition never was like something that he seemed to like not that he doesn't accept it because I think he does but I just think it's not something that he probably wants I think what he wants is like you know a normal life and he keeps talking about like how ordinary his life is so I don't know if he's ever had that drive to like 
do or aspire to what she's trying to aspire to. And maybe then in that sense, it wouldn't have worked anyways if they got together. I'm not sure. But I do think that he recognizes that whatever it is in her that keeps her motivated to like wanting more um, is something that maybe he doesn't, he can't provide or he just can't vibe with. And he kind of has to let her go in part because of that. So, and that's one of the things that makes this love story so tragic in some ways. Cause it's like in another life, they would have been so perfect together. You know? I don't know. I, I, I felt that in a very different way. I felt, yeah, mm-hmm. she's still driven, but, and this is like me speaking toward, you know, the immigrant child experience or the non-American experience of an upbringing where he's like, you know, especially uh, Asian cultures, you have to be successful, da-da-da, X, Y, Z. He views himself, I think, not as a failure, but inadequate in a way. Um, Especially in the end where he's talking about marriage. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm an only boy. I'm supposed to have be successful, have a lot of money. I'm supposed to have, you know, the typical male traits, like I'm the breadwinner that can kind of become toxic. I'm the breadwinner. I need to have X, Y, and Z. Where she has left that environment, like her family has left that environment, like her, she says her dad is a director, her mom is an artist, but growing up in a Western culture, she has, she still has that drive, but she's managed her expectations. She was like, oh, I'm going to win a Nobel Peace Prize. Then she goes, um, I like writing. So then it becomes a Pulitzer. And then it goes, okay, I'm doing theater. I'm writing for plays. I'm going to do a Tony. It's the ex- she still has high expectations for herself, but it's become more manageable and realistic in a way. Where he has still set kind of lofty goals that he himself can't reach or know, or has figured out how to reach. And I feel like that's also why he's still stuck stuck on her. Like that moment in your life when you're thinking about every your middle school crush, like or, your, or like any crush before like high school, or before life just punches you right in the face and drops you down. Like it's idyllic, it's perfect. There's no stretch. And now there's somebody back in my life from I knew at that time when things were so simple, sim- simple. So I, I I view it that way, where she's learned to like find happiness and enjoyments in the simple things. And he's still putting pressure on himself in a way. Yeah. I think they view things pretty differently. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there, yeah, this was just like a, it was so interesting to just watch these people grow up and see like how their lives kind of weave in and out like how they weave in and out of each other's lives in a weird way because even when she's married she goes to Seoul with her husband but she tries to see him and he doesn't want to see her or was he there he might have been in china by that point i think he was in china they i don't think they were in Seoul. yeah but he goes to china and you know i think initially they're like no she says like off screen like we don't see them travel there but like off screen they made a trip (laughs) and she tried to see him i'm saying like he mentioned like oh would be um a year and a half before I can go to New York. And she's like, well, I, it'll be a year before I can go to, to Seoul. And by the by mm-hmm. time they both are able to go, he's already in, in China. So, you know, yeah. Right. I guess this is a good time to talk about Arthur. So this is Nora's husband, mm-hmm. who is also a writer. Um, I... <laughs> 
Okay, so there were two girls who were sitting behind me in the theater. And one of the girls, I think she was Black. She said, so there's a part in the um, in the movie where Nora and Arthur are having a conversation. This is when Sung is coming to New York. So he says, like, Arthur says, like, well, you know, in this story, like in a storybook, you know, version of our lives, I would be the villain. Like, I would be, like, the disruptor in the block in the way of two people finding true reconnecting love, yeah. and, and finding true love. And the girl behind me was like, yes. Like, she just, like, yelled it out just like that. Yeah. And I had to laugh because I thought that was funny. But, like, the way he is portrayed, I don't know if anyone could have been as understanding, as patient, as kind as he was in that position. Like, I don't know anyone who's like that, who wouldn't. And the thing is, like, when I watched an interview with the actors talking about it, he was like, they're still... wrestling with the jealousy and stuff that they both feel, Sung and Arthur both feel towards each other, not loving the situation that they're both kind of in love with the same woman. Um, but the fact that they're able to have a scene, like when they had that conversation at the bar, and it's like, that's so one mature, you know, most people wouldn't be able to do that. And they weren't lovers in the sense of like, something actually happened with them, but they were very connected, very close. So yeah. And it, and it kind of probably spoke to his own insecurities of feeling like, well, I'm marrying this woman who culture is very different than mine. And I'm trying to learn and I'm trying to be a part of it. And it's difficult, you know, it's not as easy as it would be if she was with someone from her own country, you know? And so to grapple with all of that and still be as kind and as open to like have a conversation to be like, yes, come into our home. We will take you out to dinner. Like to let his wife say her goodbyes to this person who's been a close friend to her for so many years. Like that is a level of maturity I have never seen on screen. (laughs) I was shocked. I said, wow, you're a really good guy. Like you're a good man. Yeah, it's it's funny that that this movie kind of shifts and deals with that topic, especially in light of everything that's happened last couple of weeks. You know, Kiki Palmer and her um boyfriend, those issues of toxic masculinity. Then you have um Shona Hill and his girlfriend, those issues. Um, it really takes a really trusting and a person who's self aware of themselves to be put in that situation. Because I know personally, I me, I'd wrestle with it. Like, you want it, like, and he could tell he was wrestling because he, when she brought up he, well, he feels like so Korean, you know. He, you know, she, she sits down and says, "Yeah, you're right. He, he likes me." And mm-hmm. and then when they're in the morning, you know, he's like getting breakfast ready, and she's there in the bathroom, like putting lotion on. He's like, "Do you still like him?" Like that, mm-hmm. that fear, like that rustling is like, I love my wife. I want her to, you know, be happy and be satisfied, you know, and, and close this chapter in her life or move on to another one. But I'm also wrestling with the idea of like, I know you love me, but I have a hard time believing you do. And that, mm-hmm. that really takes a level of maturity that it takes a lot to get to man or woman no matter what like i know like it, it that i give ultimate props to arthur and especially at the end where you know he, he oh, comes yeah. in comforts her at the end you know it takes a, a lot 
to deal with all that, you know. Especially, and I and I feel like it's also worse because the restaurant scene and is a very long scene, and mm. they spend most of it just looking at each other talking, and he's there to just drink by himself at the bar until they talk and to be strong enough to handle that situation is is a lot. It's really a lot. Yeah. I think it's also like you have to have a certain amount of security in your relationship to be able to do something like that. Like there's a point where they talk about he he goes, well, are you going to leave me? And I think he says it like half jokingly, half serious. And she's like, yeah, I'm going to leave my entire life. I'm going to move back to Korea. And you know, like that's what's going to happen. And like, she's joking, obviously, but I think what she's trying to say is like, it would be so absurd for me to leave the life that I, like, I really want. Like, I'm not going to leave my life here in New York. I'm not going to leave my husband. But then he comes in with that line that you said later, that you said earlier about like, not believing that this person actually loves you, even though you know that they do. Which is crazy. Like, I totally felt that. I was like, yeah, that you're onto something there. But I, yeah, I feel like you have to be secure. And especially at the end when um, they're kind of like, Hesong and Nora are kind of like lingering outside. Like, I think his Uber is either there or it's about to come. And the whole time I was like, are they going to kiss? Are they going to kiss? Like, are they going to kiss goodbye? And then I was like, if she kissed him, I wouldn't be mad. Like, I know it, it would technically be cheating, but I'm sorry. I was rooting for this relationship. Like, I also love Arthur, but I, and I, and I love whatever relationship and chemistry that they both have, mm-hmm. but I was uh Hey Sung and Nora Stan throughout the, throughout the film. But, um, I was like, oh, are they going to do it? And then they don't. And she's very restrained in like how, uh, how she kind of deals with her feelings around him. Like, I don't think she ever fully like lets him in, in terms of like being like, I really, really missed you. But I think she kind of conceals some of that because, you know, she's married, she's in a relationship. Like she can't, (laughs) it would be wrong to do, to go that far probably. But um, at the end, when he finally does leave, and she breaks down in Arthur's arms. I, that finished me. I was like, all right, here come the tears. Because, like, that was so... Because I could feel her holding on to the, whatever, everything that she wasn't saying to him. I could feel it. And I was like, damn, like, I'm so invested in this story. So when she finally breaks down, it feels like a release for not only her, but for me, too. I was like, finally, some some catharsis of, like, knowing how important this relationship was in your life. And the fact that Arthur is there to like comfort her and hold her in that moment, I was like, y'all, I wanted the hey something to work, but if it, it couldn't work, I'm glad that this is working. Like y'all are a couple of the year. Like that's great. Cause I don't know. Like in, in real life and on screen, I have never seen a man be written like that or anyone for that matter. Like how, I would like to think that I would be able to do the same, but I honestly don't know. Like, that's, I don't know. I, I, can, <laughs> I can say it from personal experience. It's, it's being the shoulder to cry on is, is never, you feel sometimes conflicted over it in mm-hmm. a way. Cause one part is like, 
you you knew this was gonna happen or X, Y, and Z, and then you also feel like you're being put in a box as just being a comforter. It's it's a real And that's one of those things where, even as a man, if you're gonna, if you will say you want to be a comfort, you have to be confidently assured that you can handle that issue, those issues, and that that baggage that comes along with it. Just to to say verbally, oh yeah, I'm here for you, but then to actually be there for somebody is two totally different things. So, <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely true. Um. So yeah, that was just incredibly powerful. And I and the slow build helps you be invested in the relationships involved. Um, because you know, nothing really happens in the story. Like the characters' feelings are what's driving the narrative. And I feel like in that, yeah, you kind of have to lay it out and get people, lay out the foundation and get people invested in that. So when we get to the last part, it feel you can feel the impact of the of those moments. And I love the ending of uh, Song kind of holding his head out of the window as he's driving um, to the airport because it feels like he's finally been able to let her go. Like he, maybe he just needed this trip, need to talk to her, need to talk to the husband, kind of get everything out there and then go home. And I thought that that was so beautiful. I, I really loved that ending for him. Um <laughs> Yeah, and it's it's really it's really interesting because the movies the movies kind of gets the ball rolling when they're like adults in a way, and he's like with one of his friends, and his friend is crying over a girl he dated for two days, and they're like, they basically say, "You want to be sad now if you didn't love her," and that's been mm-hmm. song for the past twenty four twenty ish years of sad that she left. And it's still holding mm-hmm. on for her. Um, and I love how he describes, like you mentioned, like these days are two men who are in love with the same woman. It's it's not mm-hmm. you know it's not my best friend's wedding where we're gonna fist fight at a at a table, you know, with all our friends. It's it's more a silent simmer. But um, when Hey Song is describing him and Arthur to Nora, he basically says, "For you, for me." You're always changing and leaving, but for him, mm-hmm. you're always here, and and you, that gives you a hint of kind of the bitterness and resentment he he held in. Like you've always been a constant. Like in elementary school, and then you leave, and then we meet each other again down the road as adults, mm-hmm. and then you cut off communication with me, and then. Later on in life, we we pick it back up again. You're always leaving. You're you're never you're never stagnant. You're always changing in different in different phases. So, and honestly, that's kind of a metaphor for relationships in a way. Like you're never usually stagnant. You're always evolving. But for some people, relationships fail because they still want that original version of you, like um, he did for her like the person I knew when I was 12 years old. And for Arthur, Arthur's like, I'm in love with a person yet you are turning into. So, Mm. yeah. Yeah, very. And I just, it goes back to a theory that I have established where I just think that women know how to write men in kind of the best ways because 
there is a version of this story where it could be a very like toxic masculinity, like just instinct, impulse, and like physical kind of animalistic version of where it's like, let's just fight each other over this one, this one person. Yeah. And the fact that she doesn't do that. And from what I've seen from the films I've watched where it's focused or has men in, in it, but it's written from a woman's perspective. It's like, you don't get any of that. And it's not that though, again, it's not like those feelings aren't there because they are, and they're kind of expressed um, throughout, especially the portion when, after he shows up, like you can feel the tension, obviously through all of them. So it's not like it's not there. It's just handled in a different way. Um, In a way that I think would probably be more close to real life where it's like, you're not just going to fight someone unless you're that type of person, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But usually you're going to be quietly resentful. You might be a little petty and a little passive aggressive. Like that's probably how that would play out. And I feel like that is more accurate to real life. And I feel like she depicted it in that way. I'm not the pettiness or passive aggressiveness necessarily, but just in the way it's like, I'm Arthur obviously looks uncomfortable in like, upset that like him his wife and her childhood crush are like having a cute little conversation in a language that he doesn't understand like obviously he's gonna feel some type of way about it but he's still there and they still have a conversation afterwards like they're still able to talk about it um which was just yeah i just think that i don't know there's something about the, the female perspective, the female gaze. It's and you 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 hit on something I was about to mention. You you, you mentioned right that the female gaze, and I was mm-hmm. I was gonna say for a lot of writers, especially writers writing men, they write it from a male gaze, like how a man thinks he should be perceived, hyper masculine, hyper aggressive. Like I feel like that scene where he's like, "Oh, your career is." Would have it would have it would have been more sarcastic in a way. So had like mm. had a a man written and directing this, you know, and delivering like, oh, your 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 Korean is kind of good, kind of like, oh, you're belittling me, like that kind of thing. And the tension would have been hyped up for no reason. And like you mentioned for the the uh, female glaze, I think women write men for write men the way they want men to be. And like, but I think when women write men, they also contain a bit more realism to it. You know, I think when mm-hmm. men write men, we kind of do go over the top a little bit more. And women kind of give, when they write men, give them more room to be either or, in a way. Because she could still put a, uh, she could have still put a, a, a masculine male in there, and I don't think it would have made any difference. It would have still felt the same, you know? Um... And I, I love, and and I think that's also important because we don't mention Nora's father. And something that has to do with the writers. We see her father, see her father once, and then that's it. Like she's like, yeah, I only talked to my mom in Korean and stuff like that. Like her father's like not in the picture. So I do think that also delves the type of person that you know Nora chooses to be with. You know. 
maybe you know they're moving because their father mm-hmm. decided to make the move and she marries somebody unlike their father and when she sees hey song and those mannerisms she goes oh he's super korean like those are the same mannerisms and behaviors that my father has and that's not something i really want like i think men as writers we really don't really know how to break down those kind of internal struggles people deal with in a way i would agree with that yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I also really appreciated one that this movie was filmed in New York. So obviously it's going to be very close to my heart. Any movie that's filmed in New York, I'm just automatically going to love because I'm just like, it was really New York, not Atlanta for New York. Right. (laughs) It was the real, it was the real deal. Um, but I also really liked the simplistic cinematography. Like, I think that I'm a person like who loves stylistic cinematography i'll be the first one to admit that i love really nice aesthetics like i love all those things but i think there has been so much of it kind of pumped out over the over over the like recent years that when you have cinematography that's really good but very simple and natural and um yeah just naturalistic i kind of appreciate that more especially for like the story that this is telling like this this story in particular where it's just about people living kind of ordinary lives like if you ran into them in the street like you wouldn't think anything different but like but their emotions and their own story is very impact or impactful and like huge to them even though their lives kind of just seem normal so i really loved how this was shot i love that it was shot in new york and i also just i love that i don't know I feel like this, these, these kinds of stories are the things that I feel like I'm always going to gravitate towards, even though I like like big productions. I love, love Wes Anderson. You know, I love, you know, the like colorful production design, big things. Like I really do enjoy those things, but I feel like my heart will always be with stories like this because I just feel like, that's the thing like I can connect to easily or more easy. Yeah. Easily. Yeah. Easily. Or, you know, that's not a word. Easily. More easily. easily. Yeah. You, more easily. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you're, you're a big <laughs> fan of character studies and interpersonal relationships. That's, that's you. That's your wheelhouse. I am. That's um, my wheelhouse. <laughs> and, and you mentioned like the simplicity of this movie. I think it goes beyond that. Like to me, like you can tell when there's a strict color palette and stuff for these movies like for this movie there was very little like the only thing i could think of is like when the two of them are together whether they are children or adults like he is always has blue and she always has something with white on you know Mm. whether white or beige whether you know we meet her for the first time she's crying she's got that beige jacket the beige sweater on and he has the blue jacket you know when they meet as adults once again like especially those two times are the last times they see each other you know, she's in he's in blue, she's in white. And one thing that also spoke out spoke to me was the scenes where they reconnect and where they disconnect. Where they first reconnect, mm. she's wearing a black shirt and he's wearing blue still. And then when they break up the first time via Skype, she's wearing black. He's wearing blue still. Mm. And when they break up at the end, like he's wearing blue and she's like it's like in moments of like where they're going to disconnect. Like, or there's a change in their relationship. 
she's the one in black. Like, kind of like the man in black. Mm. She's about to break bad news to him constantly. But beyond mm. that, I don't think there was really anything really big to me in regards to, you know, color palette as far as people's wardrobe and emotion beyond, you know, her being in black when they break up. And what I also love about this movie is they used the weather a bit as a character. Like, that, that, mm. that's really lost in cinema these days. Like, the only one that I think pops in my head now is Great Gatsby when he's um trying to meet uh, Daisy, if I remember her name correctly. I haven't read, read a scene yeah. since Gatsby in years, where it's raining. And that mm-hmm. also shows, like, Gatsby's anxiety. Like, he wants the day to be perfect, and he's nervous. And so now it's, it's raining. Like, things are in chaos. Mm-hmm. Like, the outside world reflects the turmoil inside of him. And when he's leaving for, for New York, his friend's like, oh, you picked a bad day to go. And they're like, why? Oh, it's, it's severe thunderstorms the whole time. And mm. it really wasn't. It was just that first day of him by himself being rainy. And then the rest of the time it was sunny. But the severe thunderstorm was that emotional and mental turmoil both their characters are going through. You know, and I, I love little things like that. But I really wish it'd bring back adding, you know, having the weather be a character in, in those in these movies a bit so yeah and it felt nice because it felt like a subtle kind of way to kind of add that in versus like yeah. it being very on the nose yeah so that was really good um but yeah i thought all the performances were fantastic um i didn't so i rewatched a movie this week and john Majaro, Majaro, <laughs> Majaro. We're gonna Magaro. get it one day. I'm just gonna John M. Um, he's also in that film. He's also in the film that I watched earlier. Um, so that was fun to see him in both of these roles. I love Greta Lee. I I remember watching her initially in New Girl. She was like a guest star in New Girl years back. And she's popped up in a whole bunch of other stuff since she's... I most recently saw her in um, The Morning Show. She was really good in that. But she's such a good actress. And I feel like she did... Everyone did such a fantastic job of restraint. Like, restraining your feelings to a certain point without, like, um, kind of giving everything away. Because, um, again, I don't think that that's how people interact with each other either yeah. like you're never going to tell someone a hundred percent like what you think all the time um and just everyone's chemistry like even though these are two separate people two separate cultures when it comes to arthur and Sung, like the chemistry they both had with her was so great so perfect um i love the scenes when they're reconnecting and they're on Skype and some of it is really good conversation and some of it is like them just like breaking up trying to get a signal trying to like be like hey can you hear me like all that stuff very relatable um but yeah it was just everyone just did such a great job like because it didn't it always felt like you were seeing everything kind of happen not being told in like expository dialogue like oh this is what the situation is um and I also think that it's just such a great depiction of like what someone who immigrates from another country and who is now fully in this in this culture, what their experiences are like. And there's a couple of films that do that really well. Um, I think this does it 
particularly well because it's in the modern format. Because um, one of the things that kind of was like, uh, to me, um, when it come, when they were coming back from Canada and they were at the immigration stop, you know, when you're at the airport and they had to have, and, he, and the officer was like, asking them all these questions in a really like weird accusatory way. And I was like, ew, like stop being, don't give that energy. But like, that's very real for a lot of people. Like that's their experiences. So I feel like they were able to like drop in, you know, kind of truths of like what it is to be like a blank American, no matter like what that race might be. I thought that was very smart. And they didn't do it in like a heavy handed way. They just did it in a, in a way that, like, if you are a person of color, you know exactly, like, what it's about. I, I, um, it's it's rare. I think a couple of times I've gone to Jika and I've flown back through, like, flight. So I, I, I landed in Miami. And Customs was like, oh, we bought the surgery. I was like, really? <laughs> But it's very, very. If you've if you've experienced bad customs people, you, yeah, it's really, really on the nose on how you pe- they treat people of different colors or ethnicities. They get really suspicious. So, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm, I know. Mm-hmm, side <laughs> eye. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just thought that everything was done so well, and for this to be Celine's first film, that's crazy. Like to make such a good film. Like right out of the gate, I don't it just that's a gift. Like you know, and I'm excited to see whatever she does next because it's like if you're already starting out this good, <laughs> then you have nowhere else to go but up. Like that's how I feel. Yeah, yeah. This this movie was monumental. I like I cannot wait to see what else you know she does. You know. Mm-hmm. Especially, uh, like you said, this this movie is you know very personal for her because I think the last project she did was her first screenwriting job was The Wheel of Time, and that was the first season on Amazon. But like this is her like first like look, you you directing and everything. Like she like she literally is her her character. Like she's done two th- things for theater, written on television. Like she's really is her character, and it's amazing to what she she pulled from. Her, that personal experience she pulled from to create this and it's not ironic that her she says her favorite her films have this film has been compared to Richard Linkletter which if you know is one of my mm-hmm. directors Woody Allen which is a director I'm having a hard time wrestling with still because the man's mm-hmm. pretty but his work was beautiful and of course Noah Baumbach so like yeah, watching, it was watching this movie Baumbach. you can those comparisons are very spot so Yes, very much. Um, But yeah, I think that's all I have to say about this one. I encourage everyone to go see it. Wherever you can, please go see this movie. It's so good. Like, so worth your time. Yeah. Um, Moving on from past lives, we go on to box office lives. Um, Nothing really changed and outrageous out of the box office. Uh, the only issue is, you know, there's current talk of, well, not current talk, we knew it was going to happen, that uh, The Flash is kind of going to go down its history as a monumental financial financial bomb. 
over this weekend. It currently sits in 11th place, down from 8th. Um, it has the biggest drops in theater changes. Like, it dropped from, like, a thousand theaters from weekend to weekend. Where, comparatively, comparatively, you've had movies like Transformers, Little Mermaid, and Across the Universe, and Elemental. All three, all four or five of them came around the same time. They've only lost about between a thousand... They've only exited between 200 to, like, 500 theaters. Like, this movie has been removed from like a thousand theaters. Like that is a monument. And it's funny that, you know, all the upheaval of Warner Brothers through Ezra Miller's BS, they're championing this movie, you know, they tested Sazam, you know, Black Adam and Batgirl and said, no, Black Batgirl's a bad movie out of that quadri. And like I said before, had they released Batgirl, they they might not have they might have probably got a better return, especially dealing with the stuff that Ezra Miller... I think part of it being a bad movie was the, the issues Ezra Miller had. You know, he, this man went on a worldwide tour causing havoc. You know, and, yes. I think, and I think that even beyond as good that initial trailer does, and everybody kind of got hyped to watch it, but between that, Ezra Miller's behavior, and then the reaction people had when they first saw the movie, it was... it was it. Like, the moment the movie came out, like, the opening week... That was the only movie that money was gonna movie was gonna make, and it, that's all it has. So, but yeah, beyond that, um, the top ten movies are Insidious: The Red Door. That's like the first time it's open release. Indiana Jones: Dial of Destiny, um, Sound of Freedom, um, Elemental: Across the Spider Verse, um, Joyride, uh, No Hard Feelings, Transformers: Little Mermaid, and Ruby Gillian: Teenage Kraken. Um, but yeah, so now we, we have currently have two three movies in like the top six top yeah top six top five um we'll see how that shifts um i do think insidious probably will remain like top three top four and i think because i think it was i think indiana jones's debut was last week and i do think it'll go back up this week so that'll probably shift i think sound of free stuff dealing with that movie um that I won't go into detail, I'll save it for like another episode. But I do think that'll that'll drop. But yeah. To other news. Deadpool 3, there's been a lot of conversations and hype about this film because it seems to be bringing back all of the characters that we've come to know from the Fox universe that dealt with Marvel stuff. Now it's being incorporated into Deadpool world. Um, and it seems like they, along with every other adventure action movie, will be dealing with the multiverse. <sighs> um, I don't, I'll maybe in another video, I'll get into how I feel about that. But so far, um, we already knew that Hugh Jackman would be coming back as Wolverine, which is, if I remember correctly, didn't he die in Logan or something of that sort? Um, or that did that not happen? You know, Logan, he does die. But they tweeted out a, a behind the scenes a production shot of the two of the characters walking in full costume. Um, Wolverine right. is finally in his um yellow and blue costume. Suit looks ugly because of this typical Marvel Marvelification of the suits, like over detailed. Um, but based on how his character looks, I'm probably thinking this probably takes place. 
even without the multiverse shenanigans, I don't think this movie would probably have a multiverse shenanigans. But it seems to me that this movie probably takes place between um um the end of what Days of Future Past or was it Apocalypse? One of those. Time travel. Well, okay, so I'm picking up this movie probably takes place before Logan. Because he mentions in the in mentions in Logan like all those X-Men adventures and all these costumes. Those are comic books. Those are these are mem- these are stories of the past. So I'm I'm theorizing this this all this Deadpool shenanigans take place before before Logan. So okay. not gonna ask any more questions about that. I'm well, just well, gonna say why? yep. Well, why? I mean, that's my theory. Because that's I don't. Theory. No, because I just don't understand like where the thing is is that I didn't watch Deadpool two, so I'm like. Where did that leave off? I didn't is, are we in present day? Or was Logan just so far in the future that you could backtrack and say, well, this movie will be taking place in between Deadpool 2 and Logan? I just don't know. I didn't watch Deadpool 2, but look, the multiversal shenanigans as Doctor Strange and maybe Spider-Man better written-ish, they could have just they could have worked, hey, all those Fox movies are now in the MCU in a much better way, but they didn't. Um, They kind of did it by saying, hey, Professor X, you know, in one universe, the mutants are a part of the MCU, that kind of thing, but they could have, yeah, but it's hopefully, my, my vision for this is either this takes place before Logan, and also just like how Matt Reeves has his own Batman universe while DC's refer- mm-hmm. fixing himself, the Deadpool movies and those adjacent like uh, uh, Fox X-Men movies are all in their own separate universe still until, you know, uh, until uh, Disney and Marvel figure out how to bring them into the, their main timeline universe. Or the way things are going with the current slate of the um, Phase 4, they there might be an event where they all lose and the timeline gets rewritten to the Avengers. So, yeah. Um, what I excited about is that Jennifer Gardner is coming back yeah. as Elektra. Yeah. Oh my god, I'm so excited for that. I lit the Jennifer Gardner Elektra alias moment that we had back in the day. Di- unmatched, unparalleled, never been done before. Like, she is incredible. She I'm was, also obsessed with Jennifer Gardner. She was on that run. Like, nowadays, kids probably know her as the, what, the credit, the Capital One car lady, but for, like, oh, for like the 2000s, like, a good 10-year run, it was Jennifer Gardner's role. She had, what, uh... She was... Of course, Alias. She popped up in Electra. Like, she was... Like, between her and Jessica Alba, like, those two had a moment mm-hmm. during that, that 2001 to, like, 2008. The world was there as far as TV and, um, and cinematic. 1,000%. Yeah. And I don't know if Ben Affleck is coming back as Daredevil. I heard rumors that he might be. But if we're bringing people back, I want Halle Berry to come back as Catwoman, and y'all better give her a better oh, movie no. than whatever she got that initially. Movie was bad. Because y'all did her so dirty with that Catwoman movie that I want her to come back 
as Catwoman and I want a good story for her. She's an Oscar award winning actress. Like y'all played her and y'all shouldn't have played her like that. I'm still mad. (laughs) So listen. That movie was not Catwoman. They called it Catwoman to get people's seats, people's butts in the seats. That movie was horrible. Even if she admitted that the movie was horrible. Like, yeah. And that's what I'm saying. They did her dirty. That's what I'm saying. Bring her back and give her a good story. I want justice for Halle Berry on that. Like, if that movie dropped today, it would be on, like, one of those free movies on, like, on, on Tubi or whatever. Like, that, that movie would not have been in theaters. But, you know, Halle was a good sport about it. She even went to accept her Razzie for it. Like, she was like, yeah, this movie she is did. ass. And then, but she was like... But she shouldn't have had to, because yeah. they played her. Yeah. Um... Yeah, happy Jennifer Garner, and also the fact that you know apparently Ben Affleck and J Lo went to a party in the Hamptons, and Jennifer Garner's daughter looks just like her. Like Ben Affleck, she did the DNA. Like people say, like kids, some kids look like both their parents. Ben Affleck like lost that fight. Like all the genetic, all the DNA for him just just got whooped. Like that's Jennifer Garner's well, the job. First- her first daughter looks exactly like her. The her accent second daughter looks <laughs> exactly like him. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. I guess they just they just got put in different places because the way that his second kid looks exactly like him that's wild to me. I'm like, whoa. Genetics be crazy. <laughs> I know, right? But yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, moving on from the Deadpool stuff. Um. So SAG Afro, we've mentioned before about the ongoing strikes um in the industry. Of course, they um as of this story came out about six o'clock on Monday as of recording. Um they have less than forty eight hours until the negotiated deadline between them and the uh producers union, um, which the producers union controls Hollywood as far as TV and film. Um the rules SAG Afro is laying out is no shoots, no press, no social media promos um, until whatever negotiations take place. Um, if nothing happens, that's, if nothing happens as far as negotiations Wednesday on the last day of their contract with them, uh, that's what probably goes into effect. And in which, if you look at the run of like those, lucky that it came out when they did before the strike happens. Movies like uh, Blue Beetle. Uh, which stars Cholo Maduena. I'm hopefully I'm pronouncing his name probably, but of of um Cobra Kai fame. Of course, that's the Karate Kid series. Like people are mentioning that there's been zero promotion for that movie, and that movie comes out like a month or two. It's gonna be worse if a strike happens. What's in Sacramento? That means at all. Like there are a lot of movies and shows on the pipeline that will be affected. Like the movies will probably still come out, but there'll be no press no press tours, no social media promos from the actors because they do get paid to promote their movies that they're in, you know, and after, you know, forty eight hours clock is ticking, you know, actors is walking off set. So I don't know if that affects the films that are currently being shot overseas because they haven't really gone in detail on how that's being worked out. But yeah, it's not not looking good. And especially the um uh Lassie, which is um they do like special effects and editing and stuff like that. Basically they support 
a lot of below the line workers. Um, uh, basically, it's they're the international alliance of theatrical stage employees. Uh, so basically, they're going into meetings talking about how they have a prolonged approach about the use of AI in Hollywood. So that's another union who just had their negotiation, but this AI thing happened after negotiation, talking about, yeah, we want our deal restructured with you guys as well. So this is, I said last week, this is a self-inflicted wound, but as the ball keeps going, that that wound just kept getting bigger and bigger. So, yeah. Want for my birthday is for this not to happen. Like, if I can have one wish, it would be no strike. Um, let's just make, let's figure out a deal, give the actors whatever they need, and let's continue. Um, let's just keep things things rolling. But it feels like SAG Efra is like spoiling for a strike. Like they are like fiending for it. They want it very badly. Which, under the circumstances, like, I totally get. But the thing with me is, like, I understand shutting down production because, like, yeah, that's work. Like, you're, like you're acting, obviously. Like, if you're on strike, you shouldn't be doing that. The promotion thing, however, is a thing that I don't know how I feel about that part because I kind of just feel like, well, these are movies that have already been shot and edited. Like, they're, they're done, and they're coming out into theaters. Like, I don't know if you should bar people from promoting a film that they've already filmed because they're not, because they are working. Mm-hmm. Yes, they're getting paid for the promotion, but they're not acting. So, I mean, I guess, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that portion of it. I feel like actors should still be able to promote their movies, but that's neither here nor there. I'm not a part of the union. I'm not making these negotiations. So my opinion literally doesn't matter. It's just well, how I feel about it. The the issue is though, where the reason why the SAG Afro union SAG Afro strike is I think much more difficult because SAG Afro were they originally were two separate unions. Like yeah. SAG was mm-hmm. just actors on film and TV and very like if you did a couple movies background you got your qualified for SAG whatever whatever that was your union but um Afro was just you know there are people who did radio and TV you know your TV and radio announcers or and your and your news recording artists and singers so they're like two different groups that kind of have two different goals in mind well, I think their merger happened 2013 but this mm-hmm. is because I think there's still d- different groups want different things. That's also a big, big issue because SAG, SAG was mostly just just actors. Like you see me on TV, you see me in film. That's that. Afro was like everybody else. Like you turn on the radio, the DJs was doing the radio, those radio hosts, you know, those people, they're, they're, your news people who do your news, those people, like even singers or whatever, or recording artists. So, and it didn't even include some uh, voiceover actors and stunt people. So, even within a group like that, there are still different groups that want different things. More beyond where all the writers like, yeah, we all want this. Or all the directors like, yeah, we all want this. There's still portions of SAG-AFRA still operate as SAG and AFRA. So... Yeah, I feel like what I read earlier was that they're really their sticking point is the resist. Oh, 
what I read earlier is that their sticking point is with residuals. So it's like getting paid, especially from streamers where you don't actually know how much um, is coming in because they're not releasing the data. I think that that's one of the bigger issues right now. Because like AI and all that stuff obviously is a part of the conversation, but I think not getting paid for certain things when the modem of like how these things are being viewed has changed so drastically over the last couple of years, like that needs to be updated. So I don't know. I, I feel like if I was a producer of one of these big um, networks, um, studios, I would be very open to kind of just being like, yep, we'll, we'll, we'll make it work. We'll figure it out. Um, we'll make a deal because shutting the writers being gone and then the actors also being gone, like you don't have an industry really. Like you have the movies that are coming out now, but like, like you said, the movie that Blue Beetle that's supposed to come out in what, August? Yeah. They're not going to be able to do any press for this. Now, people will probably go see it still, but you can't underestimate how much promotion is important. Promotion marketing is important to actually getting these films seen and then also getting it, you know, the box office. Like those things are super important, especially if you're spending so much money on them. And then I was just thinking earlier about like the fact that Chris Nolan wasn't able to really roll out Tenet in the way that he wanted to because of COVID. And now he won't be able to really roll out um, Oppenheimer in the way he won either because of the, the possible strike. Like Barbie, they got their stuff down out early. Like they just had their premiere. So it's like, we've done all we needed to do with that. And also because it's not just a film, it's a actual like doll. It's a company. They, Mattel can deal with all the rest of the promotion and have a Barbie dream house tour if they want to and still get hype about the film. And Oppenheimer will do fine regardless. Like, those aren't films that I'm worried about. But I'm thinking about what happens when it comes to Venice and New York Film Festival and, like, all of these other places where these other films that are supposed to be Oscar contenders or, you know, being in the race of being or being a part of the conversation for awards, those can't be shown either if they're, if they're striking. I mean, you can, you, it'll still be in theaters, but zero promotion, which means no film festivals. So it's like, or they'll have it for the international stuff. But if this goes into effect, all the production is shut down worldwide. So it doesn't matter like where you are, you will not be working. <laughs> like, it's just, it's so much at stake that I can't even, I would just be like, it's Hail Mary time. Like the writing's on the wall just give them what they want. Like, that's how I would be thinking. But again, I'm not, I'm not in the, the decision-making chair. So whatever. And, and there's like, this was recently announced like earlier today, but the, their issues with um royalties and stuff goes beyond that because Disney announced today that I'll be pulling a movie called um, One and Only Ivan. Um, It came out um in 2020, 2020. Um, and it was nominated for um, an Oscar for Best Special Effects. Disney said they're pulling that from their platform. Like, now we have the first big issue. We have Oscar-nominated film. Next thing you know, it's going to be Oscar-nominated movie pulled from these streaming platforms. And Brian Cranston was like, uh, he mentioned, you know, 
you heard the news that his film is being pulled as early as next week. He's very proud of the movie. It got released after the COVID lockdown. Um, and he's saying it's a delightful story based on an actual event. Like, that's bad. Like, this is a... This movie did not do... Like, COVID, all right, cool. We're going to release it on digital streaming platforms. But also, your Disney is willing to write off, basically. That's what, basically, them pulling it off digital distribution and not having a physical release is. You know, they're basically willing to write off an Oscar-nominated film because it didn't get the views or whatever it, it thinks it, it needed. Like, so... All this, all these stupid stuff that, particularly you, we thought like the issues that Warner Brothers was having would end soon, but the issues Disney had before Bob Iger took over, they are still continuing. Seems like things have not changed as much. So stuff like this is very much in SAG Afra's uh, on benefit because now you can say, oh, Oscar nominated film or from this project because that's also a big thing oh the movie I worked on was nominated for an Oscar especially if you're a VFX like you're the VFX team behind this movie like oh our film is nominated for an Oscar and people say oh where is it you just gotta throw your hands up <laughs> in the air so yeah it's not a not a good look at all so alright let's talk about what we watched this week Dale yeah, it's been like continuing this whole theme we've been having of like studies and grief from like the last from last episode and this episode. I I did rewatch, of course, uh No Time to Die. It's taken um it's it's taken the spot of as one of my probably one of my top two favorite Bond movies. Um I just love it. Perfect send off to like Daniel Craig's Bond and stuff like that. Beautiful story and everything. Um, yeah, man. I just, I don't know. I, I love it. Like, I, I still love it. I love it. I love it to this to this day. Um, so yeah. Watch the Big Short. Um, I think Don't Look Up was so div- divisive, divisive. In terms of like how people's reactions were towards it, uh, I think people, I think critics really liked Vice. I don't know if audiences did so much. This was like the perfect film. I feel like um, this movie, where the performances, the writing, and then the subject matter all kind of aligned in a way where like you were completely engaged with it every step of the way, even though they're literally talking about like economics and math like couldn't be more boring in terms of like subject matter but because it's in the context of like a historical event which is the financial collapse of 2008 it does feel it's grounded in something that feels familiar to you because we all kind of lived through that um and then the performances were just the performances in the writing were just perfect like perfectly done Every single person was amazing. And there's a lot of characters in this movie, but every single one, flawless. Steve Carell is a huge highlight. I think he, this to me showed, like when I watched it originally, I was like, oh, this man can act. Like he's not just a comedian. Like he is a really talented actor. He was 
amazing in this. So did he get nominated for something? Based on a film? I think he might have. Was it a Golden Globe or a, it was something like that? Can't remember. I think it was a Golden Globe. Yeah. Um, he also did a great job as Donald Rumfeld in Vice, but um, this was, yeah, great and a great way to uh, like dispel or uh, dispense information because, like, most people know like 30% about what happened during the financial crisis. So, like, in order to like break down all of that Wall Street business and also not have it be super, um, what's the word? be so over the top and borderline exploitative like a movie like the wolf of wall street was and that's kind of different because it was based on someone's life but to have it more focused on like not only how it affected the people who bet against um the housing market but also about real people who were getting affected by it um I just did a great job of kind of balancing all those things together. Great movie. Phenomenal. None of his other films have really touched this one in terms of like how good the quality of it was. So yeah, I highly recommend. Yeah. As a, as a writer and a director, I think Adam McKay, like people give him like the props and like as a comedy dude, you know, of course, Anchorman and, you know, all the stuff he did with Will Farrell. But this mm-hmm. man is really good with like the big short vice. Don't look up. Like, he's really good at his like more serious movies that also have a hint of comedy in it. But at uh. its core that they are still very serious topics. But they just mask it in such a way that you kinda goes over to like, oh oh vice is really about the corruption of the Bush administration. Like like those yeah. kind of things like the big short like the big short did have some comedic moments with like serious thing he's really masterful and like I feel like he's the opposite spectrum of like Michael Moore like I'm gonna make these stories that are serious conspiracy stories stuff that happen to real people documentary style in a way that nobody really understands it and then here comes Adam McKay I'll put a little bit of comedy in it to make it more palatable mm. and easy for you to understand and it works so yeah it's really good okay well that is it from us this week we hope that you're taking care of yourselves and having a great week um we'll be on break next week so we won't be here for you next week but um we will have videos on youtube that you guys can check out um like comment subscribe if you would like and we'll be back the week following with Oppenheimer, so or is it Barbie? Yeah, we gotta. Yes, we gotta it's Oppenheimer. Up. We gotta rest up for those too. So, and we gotta rest up for for the double. Cindy needs to take a you know break for her birthday so oh. she can go on her long bender and have fun. So, I don't do any of those things. I'll be here um, <laughs> in my house. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that'll be exciting. And make sure to check out all of our social media support us if you can and we will see you guys in the next episode goodbye au revoir